Welcome to the War in Ukraine update from Kyiv podcast. I'm Jessica Ganawa, a lecturer in international relations at Flinders University in Australia, and I'm talking today with Timothy Brick. Timothy is assistant professor at the Kyiv School of Economics in Ukraine. Timothy focuses in his work on civil society and public opinion in Ukraine. Thanks for joining me on the podcast, Timothy. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I, I'm very grateful that you pay attention to Ukraine and that what happens there. And it's an honor for me, you know, to talk to your audience. Before we sort of jump into the general discussion, I just wanted to ask whether you could say a little bit about the Ukrainian Global University Initiative that I know you're involved in establishing and which seems like a really interesting project. Sure, I, I'll be happy to. So um, I think we started this project maybe three days after the full-scale invasion by Russian forces. So my colleagues and I at Kiev School of Economics, we initiated this project to support displaced Ukrainian students. And then with time, more and more people and organizations joined us. So now it goes beyond our university. It's a network of organizations, private universities, NGOs, We are also endorsed by the Ministry of Education of Ukraine and the Office of uh, President. And the idea is um, manifold. Of course, we wanted to help students, uh, you know, their dormitories, their campuses were literally destroyed. The education was interrupted. So we wanted to help them, to give them opportunities to, to keep doing what they do, to keep studying. But at the same time, we wanted to address some issues that emerged very quickly. So first of all, there was no proactive Ukrainian voice in this story. You know, there were so many international groups, individuals like professors, academics, or organizations who wanted to help. They reached out to us to help us. But you know, they didn't know how to help. And sometimes they didn't know how to unlock the resources, or sometimes they didn't know what kind of things we need so there was this void, uh, almost a kind of logistical issue that someone had to address. We, we took care of selection of the students, some bureaucracy. You know, what if the university is destroyed and there is no way you can get your diploma? Someone has to verify your English, things like that. So we organized a project to, to, to take care of that. We went through verification process. You know, we, we talked to the students. We helped them to pass Duolingo English test. We developed our own aptitude test, logic and mathematics. And we have finalists, you know, top 10% of the students. And also we were concerned with brain drain. There is a risk that these students, they go abroad, they receive excellent education and they will not return to Ukraine. So we wanted to make sure that if we help someone from the very beginning of this process, we also designed this project in a way that we will facilitate and support the students so they can come back to Ukraine to rebuild the country. We started to place these students. It was not easy, but eventually a lot of universities came around and they agreed. I think uh, one of the best examples is the University of Toronto in Canada. Uh, local government supported them, so they actually opened a new master program to accept our students to study international relations and and public uh, policy at Monk School at Toronto. There are some other examples as well. We were quite successful in Sorbonne, uh, Paris School of Economics, 
City University London, Viadrina in Germany, IE Business School in Madrid, University of Pittsburgh. And I think it was actually fundamental to, to show that this voice comes from Ukraine. There was actually the need to have one organization, a group of volunteers, to formulate, to articulate our needs. You know, we will stay in touch with all the students after receiving this excellent education. They will be this active youth who will uh, rebuild Ukrainian society. So that project is still ongoing? We will open a new call next year. So some students, you know, we did not place all students. So we will make the open call again. We will start the admission process in autumn so we can place, identify and place more students. This is one track. And the second track is community building. The way we think about it is so we plan it for at least five, seven years. So the project will be active in, in this time frame. And the idea is that we will stay in touch with all students and members of Ukrainian Global University. We will make sure that they go through the same onboarding process and then they will have access to our Moodles. Eventually, we hope that they will feel you know, some sort of connection between each other and some sentiments uh, towards Ukraine, so they will be more motivated to, to come back. And actually, it was also in the design of our interviews. When we interviewed students, we wanted to make sure that we select those candidates who in the first place, you know, they, they're very motivated to go to study abroad with the reason so they can come back to Ukraine and help our effort to rebuild it. One can think that it's almost a humanitarian aid. You know, there are so many U Ukrainian students who lost this chance to study. So we need to give them these educational opportunities. This is one way of looking at things. You know, you just send them to whatever university. But we went through slightly different process. We invested a lot in, into the selection process because we really wanted to select those who who are motivated to use this uh, crisis as opportunity to, to learn, you know, to, to study at best universities and then come back to, to Ukraine. Mm -hmm. I'll link to the project in the show notes, but if listeners do want to find out more, where can they go to do that? So we have a website, uglobal.university. If your audience wants to learn more about that project, they can just follow myself or my university on Twitter and Facebook, Timothy Brick. I often post about this university, so it's quite easy to engage with me through social media as well. Mm -hmm. And I'll link to those as well in the show notes. I did want to talk about various aspects of civil society in Ukraine. So I know that you have been involved in researching the role of religion in Ukrainian society. Could you say a bit about how attitudes to religion have changed since the breakdown of the Soviet Union, the place of religion in Ukrainian society and how that seems to have changed over time? It's a great question. I try to break down my answer in three parts. Of course, a lot of things changed. So uh, religion was banned in public spheres during the Soviet era. Things were more or less normalized in the 80s during the um, transition periods, the so-called perestroika period. Things became more or less accepted in this uh, time. And then religion truly re-emerged in the 90s 
meaning that it became legal to practice religion and to register religious organizations. Religion really blossomed in in the 90s during the transition period when Ukraine and other uh, post-Soviet republics became new democracies and new market economies. Religion also kind of revitalized. And there were many reasons for that. On the one hand, you know, religion and religious groups are often very efficient during crisis. Yeah? So when there is a socio- socioeconomic crisis, people have this sense of existential insecurity. Someone has to fill in this void. And also religious groups, they often provide not only non-tangible, but also tangible support. So religious groups were very efficient in the 90s. Also, a lot of Ukrainians associated religious sentiments, they perceived religion as a part of their culture and uh, history. So it was also natural that quite a lot of Ukrainians supported and endorsed the emergence of religion. And then uh, religion also became a part of a larger political narrative. So a lot of Ukrainian politicians, they mention religious symbols in their political speeches. They refer to religion when they talk about important political processes and issues of national development. So in this sense, religion quickly became a big part of Ukrainian uh, public sphere. In terms of numbers, the numbers of uh, religious parishes mushroomed. I think in the early 19th, there were something like 5,000 religious parishes of all kinds of religions in Ukraine. These numbers has tripled by now. And also in terms of identities and behavior is another story. You know, if we go around and we start asking people whether they feel themselves religious and what does it mean to them personally, we see in the data that with time more and more Ukrainians tell us that they are religious. So if we have a time machine and we go back, you know, in the early 90s and we go to some big urban area in south or east of Ukraine and we ask, we go into the room of 10 people and we ask, how many religious people are here? Maybe two or three people will say that they consider themselves religion. So two out of 10. Today, this number would be eight out of 10. So this is a tremendous increase. We have to be careful here that, you know, it's not always the case that religious identity translates into religious behavior. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to me that that sentiment towards religion was reignited so easily after the breakdown of the Soviet Union. You mentioned in some of your work that whilst this religious sentiment has increased, there's also quite a strong pluralistic character to the nature of religion in Ukrainian society. So there are many different, I guess, variants of Christianity as opposed to, you know, one variant or one sort of church having a monopoly over the religious landscape. Why do you think that is? Like, why do you think, despite the fact that the religious sentiment has increased, also this pluralistic nature to the religious landscape has increased as well? Actually, this is a wonderful sociological question. There are a lot of debates about that in the scholarship. So we can make a step back and ask a bigger question. Why some societies are religious and other societies are not religious? Whether religiosity on the planet has changed and why did it increase in some countries and decrease in other countries? And there are many hypotheses about that. There are at least three big theories that explain a possible increase in religiosity over time in any given society. 
So some scholars would say that this is all about socioeconomic development, you know, modernization, industrialization, education, the development of the state. Uh, in many societies that are more developed when uh, people get access to insurance and healthcare and education, maybe they don't need religion so much to explain the world and support them. So this is one. Another one would be something about, you know, political nature of the churches themselves. So religious organizations, they are themselves actors. They can mobilize people, they can play politics, they can be an important, crucial part of, of the state. And the third one is a mechanism that uh, sociologists call religious markets or religious competition. Uh, there is a hypothesis that this competition itself is a force to be reckoned with. That if you have church competition, it means that religious organizations, you know, they cannot enjoy monopoly. So they have to be more proactive. When, when you face competition, you have to kind of fight for your congregation. You have to satisfy your customer, quote unquote. So all these stories, they actually apply to Ukraine. In the early 90s, there was this, you know, massive crisis, this transition period from one regime to another. So a lot of people really had to fill this existential void and find some support. And you can say that religion, you know, filled this void. You can also say that religion became an important political institution itself. And also this church competition, which just happened in Ukraine. It happened historically that Ukraine is just a mix of so many cultures and ethnic and cultural groups. A lot of people practice Orthodox Christianity, and yet Orthodox Christianity is divided in Ukraine. There are different Orthodox churches. Some of them are more affiliated with the Russian Orthodox tradition. Some of them search for, you know, this Ukrainian heritage. So there is the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. We also have the so-called Greek Catholic Church, which emerged as a result of some political shifts in the 17th century, when a part of Ukraine was a part of Poland, and uh, there was this political union when Ukrainian Orthodox Christians became adherent to Pope. So that's how Greek Catholics emerged. We also have Crimean Tatars who are Muslims, and we have quite a lot of new evangelistics and Protestant groups that entered Ukraine after the collapse of Soviet Union with this mission or to bring new types of religion to Ukraine. So all this diversity and versatility became a vital force to add to competition. And the competition itself stimulated development of local religious groups, which uh, brought more and more people you know, to appreciate religion. And also, we have data that shows that it's not just about the Ukraine as an national level, but you can break down Ukraine at the level of administrative units, regions. Our data shows that whatever region you pick, there is no religious monopoly. And this also means that there is no one national church. There is no one national church because they all compete for this symbolic and political capital. Um, in the course of history, different churches played this crucial role, but there is no one big single monopolist at the top, and we don't see monopoly at the bottom, at the level of parishes. And because of that, these two forces kind of reinforce each other. So uh, that's why we still have this pluralism, and pluralism 
adds to you know cultural diversity of Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Also, there must be an intersection between the state and civil society in that there was a tolerance of the Ukrainian state for that diversity. Oh, I think in my personal opinion, it's not a strategy. I think it's just the state was too weak to impose its own agenda and to support one specific group. I think it's a paradox of Ukraine that, you know, sometimes people wish to have a stronger state, but apparently not having a strong state in some sense is also nice because there are different competing groups, competing political elites, competing economic elites and regional elites. And this competition did not allow to emerge one, you know, authoritarian group as it happened in some other post-Soviet countries. And I think there were just a process, long process of competition when different groups, they, you know, they changed each other, they competed with each other. No group managed to win. No group managed to, you know, to destroy the competition to an extent that they were able to install once and for all one dominant ideology, one dominant group, one dominant religion. This did not happen due to the constant competition. Mm -hmm. I'm also interested in the issue of societal polarization that I know you've looked at and is obviously an increasingly important issue in many countries. Have you found that there is a high level of societal polarization in Ukraine? So the surprising answer would be no, that we do not observe a lot of polarization in Ukraine. And the reason why I said surprising is because I think Ukraine is often portrayed or often perceived as deeply divided nation. You know, if you go online and you Google Ukraine, you'll find people on YouTube or in blogs or, you know, media talking that Ukraine is divided. There is Western and Eastern Ukraine. And this division has been a source of revolutions, wars, things like that. And this narrative has been around for so many years, but this narrative is very strange to me because from everything I know in the local sociological and political science research goes against this narrative. Mm. So there is a kind of gap between what scholars know and what public knows. To give my explanation, I try to make sense of this gap myself. I'm not sure that I have the, you know, all the answers, but at least that's how I explain it to myself. I usually try to think about Ukraine in three layers, culture, identities, and attitudes. So culture, you know, there are different ways to define what culture is, but I will go with the most kind of simplistic. So a lot of people define culture as a repository of values social norms, beliefs, you know, what people think is good or bad, how we build ties with our spouses, relatives, friends, role models that we pick. So this is culture. And then if you analyze Ukrainian culture, you'll see from, you know, surveys, field experiments, qualitative data, that Ukrainians who live in different regions or represent different generations, they're quite similar. They value similar things. They value families, they trust their kin, they are a bit conservative, they don't like change, and they support social ties. And so many studies support this. Uh, And whether you go to rural or urban, western or eastern parts of country, you'll find very similar patterns. So in terms of culture, Ukraine is not very divided. 
then identities. And when I say identity, I mean whether people feel that they belong to, you know, Ukrainian nation, or maybe they have some local identity. You can say, you know, I'm American or I'm from New York. The same you can say about Ukraine, whether they feel that they live in this specific village, this specific city, or they share some bigger sense of belonging, being a citizen of this country. And in this sense, it is true that there was some variation which gradually disappeared. So the data shows that with time, more and more Ukrainians from different regions, they increasingly adhere to the idea of, you know, that they are proud of being Ukrainian citizens, they share this Ukrainian identity, so they recognize the importance of the Ukrainian statehood. So maybe this was a question somewhere in the 90s, but this is not the question now. And then the final third level, the level of attitudes to specific policies. You know, just to give an example, when people say polarization, very often they mean that, you know, a big part of society supports one policy and another part of society does not support this policy, like marijuana usage or gun control or abortion, you know. So in Ukraine, in terms of attitudes and support of some policies, for many years, research has shown that Ukrainians kind of were indifferent. And I think I attribute it to the, to the fact that this is a very young nation. So Ukrainians did not yet develop deep understanding of all political and socioeconomic processes. So if you ask people whether they are on the left or on the right, whether they support certain taxation policies or not, a lot of people would say, we don't know or we don't care. This was the case for many, many policies. And we saw this in our data, you know, regardless if it's Western or Eastern Ukraine. However, there are indeed some things that used to divide Ukrainians. And mostly this was about geopolitical orientation. You know, some people wanted to be to build alliances with the European Union. Some people felt that they should be closer to Russia. And this had some regional implementation in a way that you, you can see that Western Ukrainians support some policies, Eastern Ukrainians support other geopolitical orientations. And mostly this can be attributed to local politics, that there are some local political elites, local media, local religious or economic actors who, you know, sort of benefited from some policies or orientations and they mobilize local population around it. So usually these differences are negligible. You don't really see them unless elections happen. Because during the elections, you want to mobilize your electorate. You want to have this rally around the flag effect. And you say, well, we belong to a proud region and we want to go to European Union. But the guys from another region, they don't want to go to European Union. So vote for me. I'm your candidate. I will bring you to the European Union. Things like that. So only during electoral cycles, we observed some heightened uh, polarization. And I think it's so easy to see the results of elections and map them on the geographical map and say, well, one region voted for one candidate, another region voted for another candidate. Therefore, Ukrainian is deeply divided nation. Yeah, that's how this narrative emerged. But to me, as a you know social scholar, I see that at the level of culture, Ukrainians are quite similar in the level of identities. Ukrainians are quite similar. And in the level of attitudes, Ukrainians 
occasionally different, occasionally similar. So I don't see a lot of polarization here. And that's why I'm not so surprised to see the reaction of Ukrainians now during the war, even though Ukrainians are quite, you know, they, they live in different regions, they represent different generations, but they all united against the common enemy, which happened to be Russia, even though some of these Ukrainians, they speak Russian language and they live geographically quite close and they share family ties. Still, they support Ukrainian nation, citizenship and the idea of sovereignty. And in this sense, Ukraine appears to be quite unified. So it seems to me that, you know, re years of research appear to be quite true. Mm -hmm. Do you think that that decrease in divisions when it comes to the social identity in Ukraine mm -hmm. that you were mentioning, was that furthered by events like the Maidan revolution and then, you know, Russia's territorial incursions into Ukraine in 2014? I'm wondering whether you think that that actually lessened those divisions in terms of Ukrainian identity. And then, of course, with the full-scale Russian invasion, this year is a much more drastic event. I do think so. I agree with you that there were major historical events, how Ukrainians started to see themselves and their communities. And I think it's quite a universal story. Yeah? I, I believe that there are some macro level, big historical or political events that can shape individual you know, trajectories and that the nations are shaped by these events. Yeah, so we had economic crises in the 90s during the transition period uh, to market economy. We had several elections. Some of these elections uh, resulted in uh, revolutions. Uh, one of them, I think, is quite famous, Orange Revolution in 2004. And I think the important part of this revolution is that it was actually mostly competition between political groups. So there were different political groups who rep were represented by candidates, presidential candidates. Elections were rigged, so the opposition uh, was against these results, and they initiated this process. They didn't want to recognize the results. So everything started with them, with political party, with big political group, and then people joined them. And I think it was a very important step in the history of Ukraine when it went from up to bottom. So it, it, sometimes it's very important to have this leadership that signals what kind of political vision they have, what kind of values they have, whether they want to defend democracy, and then they mobilize people. And people trust to politicians and they say, okay, we, we think this is very important. We, we will go to the streets to support this cause. It was very important process in 2004. And this actually shaped the, you know, the discussion. It shaped how media uh, started to talk about the idea of the nation and citizens' responsibility. It actually influenced civil society because people felt that, well, we have our responsibility. We need to support this political force because they're fighting for democracy. So that was very important. And then in 2014, another thing happened, Euromaidan revolution. And I think that the Euromaidan revolution was very different in, in its nature because now it was a grassroots revolution. It was not about, it was very opposite. Now it started from the bottom. So people, members of civil society, journalists, activists, they initiated the revolution. They were not happy with the policies by the government and they went to streets to tell how they feel and uh, to defend their vision. 
with time, politicians, opposition, joined them, but only with time. And I think this was another very important step in the development of Ukrainian political culture, you know, so people realize that they don't need to wait for politicians to tell them what to do. They can actually generate ideas, they can articulate these ideas, and they can be more proactive. And of course, this big event shaped everything. It shaped how people viewed politics, how people discussed politics. Then dramatically, this event also became a single element in a chain of events. Then annexation of Crimea happened. Then uh, the war in Donetsk and Lugansk started. So, of course, these events profoundly shaped how Ukrainians viewed their own role in the state. And it boosted appreciation and understanding of what citizenship is. People actually evolved quite quickly. You know, yesterday they were just casual friends walking around the cities, but now they have to make this very existential decision. Do we want to defend democracy? Why do we need to defend democracy? Do we do we want to stay and live in this country or do we want to leave? Are we going to volunteer to go to army to defend Crimea or not? So people really, they were forced to think about these very, very existential things and they rediscovered their sense of national identity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That makes sense, and I can imagine only increased with the full-scale Russian invasion. Thank you so much, Timothy. I really appreciate you sharing your insights on the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Mr. Smith for our theme music.